Music to Code By is taking the developer world by storm. Now there are six extra tracks available online in addition to the original three. That's nine Pomodoros of pure productivity just waiting for you. Check them out at mtcb.pwop.com. Net Rocks, episode 1228, with guest Chris Patterson. Recorded Tuesday, November 24th, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's .NET Rocks all over again. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And, uh, hey man, how's the, uh, how's the... The renovation coming. Yes, the the <laughs> non-optional renovation. Yeah, the forced renovation. Forced renovation. Yeah, it's coming along just fine. The uh, basement's all been emptied out. It's taken a while. Turns out I have a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, when the flood happened with the fish tank a few years ago, that was only two rooms. This is now six rooms worth of stuff, and all yeah. storage and everything. So it's just packing all of that up. And there are people. There have been four people working in the basement for... I don't know, over a week, just to pack everything. The water didn't come from a tank, it came from the sky. Yes, and then it went <laughs> down into the ground, and then it came up into my basement. <laughs> oh, boy. But the, And the reality is most there's relatively few things that got wet, except for the floors and the walls, mm. but they have to get everything out in order to do the work that needs to be done. So every room is having the drywall cut out about three foot high. Oh, boy. So that's around all the power outlets and all the Ethernet jacks. So... Yeah, you know what I'm going to actually be able to bury while this is going on? What? The water cooling pipes in my walls. Oh, neat. I've stopped using them, so now I can actually have them cut back and buried. I don't have to see them anymore. There you go. A nice little highlight for uh, what happens when you flood my office. But you still don't water cool your PCs, though, right? No, it's not necessary anymore. You know, that yeah. technology sort of came and gone, so. Right. I mean, that was sort of the P4 era when they got so hot that- They got incredibly hot. And and yeah. the and cooling technology was pretty primitive. You know, we're- a lot of cooling systems inside of computers now do do phase change cooling. It's just mm. a sealed phase change cooling. So, uh, but yeah, I actually had plumbing going through my walls to the outside for the external cooling tank. Uh, I just stopped using it, shut it all down when we did the big house work a few years ago. And I, now I can take out the, the taps in the office. Well, I n learned a new term that I didn't know what it means. Phase changed cooling. What is that? Phase change cooling is where they actually, there's a liquid, typically alcohol, inside of the cooling block that converts to gas. So that's the phase oh, change. It changes phase. It picks up a lot of heat to do that. And then in gaseous form, moves up the heat pipe, cools, become liquid, and comes back down again. I see. Tricky. Yeah. So there are dry heat pipe designs and there are wet heat pipe designs. And wet hmm. heat pipe uses... Uh, phase change, and those are sealed cooling solutions these days. And you get them, you don't even know you have them. They're just in your machine. They Closed work. system. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's roll the music for a little segment that we call Better Know a Framework. Awesome. <laughs> 
That's all right, dude. What do you got? It, it occurs to me it's been a long time since I even uh, talked about what Better Know a Framework is. You know, back when it was a framework? Right. Yeah. It started <laughs> as a little way for me to shine a light in a dark corner of the .NET framework and related tools. And then it just became a way to highlight something. I think somebody tweeted once, this is Carl Googling the internet an hour before the show. <laughs> <laughs> Sort of. But I mean, you know, things that catch my eye and things that you might not know exist. Uh, let's just shine a light. So this one uh, I found through the App V Next guys who are all talking on Slack and this came up. Wrapbootstrap.com. Uh, Wrap, W-R-A-P, bootstrap.com. So this is a premium marketplace for bootstrap themes and templates. In other words, you got to pay for them. Right. They claim to have more uh, professional, in-depth designs with bootstrap themes and templates. Well, this is what we've always talked about, right? Like the advantage for your average dev is if you use bootstrap, your site looks okay, but it looks like bootstrap. But at some point when you want to change it, there are libraries and here they are. Right. And bootstrap, for those who don't know, uh, is a CSS library where there's a standard set of CSS names, right, for the things in your uh, on your website, on your web page, in your HTML. And based on that, if you adhere to the rules and use their conventions, you uh, can just swap in the themes and templates and swap them in and out, and poof, your website changes beautifully. I remember one of the first examples of seeing how you could do this with CSS was CSS Zen Garden. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's still out there. Yeah, it's still out there. And it was just one of these eye-opening things that said, oh, so this is what you can do. I mean, you know, you would see completely different looks and feels, yet all the same data and functionality was there. Yeah, interesting. So there you go. And, and again, I haven't taken that big a look through this, but some of the guys were talking about how uh, they've used the themes on here before and they liked them. So I'm passing it on to you. Nice one, dude. I like it. Yeah. Who's talking to us, man? So you'll love this comment. I grabbed this comment off of show 798 from 2012. Yes, that's the show we did with Chris Patterson where we talked about mass transit. Oh, yeah. And I was going to go, you know, make a call back to something we talked about with mass transit and so forth. But I ran across this comment from Gustav Osgard, who said, Hey, guys, thank you for always bringing great shows. I've been listening to .NET Rocks for, for about as long as I can remember, which is probably like five years. Okay, so that's longer than a goldfish memory. but <laughs> And that was two years ago, too, or almost three years ago. So that's eight years now. And it's one of the best sources for new ideas and technologies for me. I was re-listening to 798 now because we're starting to use mass transit at work, and I needed to refresh my memory. It's very nice of you to keep the archive open and available. While we're talking, and I love that turn of phrase, <laughs> writing a comment on a website, but while we're talking, yeah, while we're talking, I have a suggestion for a small improvement. Could you please consider changing your naming convention for the episodes? Currently, you usually name them first name, last name tells us about technology X. That's all good in the browser, but on a mobile device, and I use the iPhone podcast app, the title is capped and all you see is first name, last name tells us. That means I have to tap into the episode details to see what the episode is about. My suggestion would be to start naming these episodes Technology X with first name, last name. What do you say? Okay. Okay. We actually <laughs> took his suggestion and We did took that. your suggestion, Gustav, all those years ago, and we have done it that way 
ever since, and mm-hmm. we have never thanked you. Yeah. So thank you. And right. a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social medias because we post every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there, we read your comment, we'll send you a mug. And of course, you can always reach us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We'd love to hear from you. And let's bring back to the show for the second time, Chris Patterson. He's principal architect for Relay Health, the connectivity business of the nation's leading healthcare services company. There he is responsible for the architecture and development of applications and services that accelerate care delivery by connecting patients, providers, pharmacies, and financial institutions. Previously, he led development of a new content delivery platform for TV Guide, enabling the launch of a new entertainment network seen on thousands of cable TV systems. In his spare time, Chris is an active open-source developer, contributing to projects including Mass Transit, a messaging and distributed application framework, as well as Top Shelf, a service hosting framework. In 2015, Chris received his seventh consecutive Microsoft MVP award in Visual C Sharp, and he was also granted the title of Fellow with McKesson in 2014. It's a career-long title with the company recognizing the top technologists throughout McKesson. Welcome back, Chris. Hey, great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Mass Transit, Enterprise Service Bus. <laughs> so... Uh, where do we start? I, I, you know, I think I'll start with this. I've, I've seen a lot of architects say that, you know, if you don't have an ESB in your plan, you're asking for trouble. And on the other side of the fence, I've seen it the other way, where, you know, when you have an enterprise service bus, you suddenly become a little less agile because you have changing interfaces and things like that that you have to keep up with. And pretty much you have to have a small team if you get big enough to just to manage the service bus. So take us, take us through the arguments for having a service bus in the first place. Yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me on the show. It's been a while. Um, I think uh, three years now. So too it's long. great to kind of be back. Yeah. yeah. Too long indeed. Um, but during that three years, you know, a lot's been going on. Um, cool. To your question, why would somebody, you know, try to weigh the, the, the pros and cons of saying, okay, let's go all in. We need a service bus. Versus the, I guess, you know, the care and feeding of said distributed architecture once you've kind of made that leap. Mm-hmm. Um, to answer that, I would say it really depends on kind of how the company starts out. So, I mean, if you think, you know, so over the past three years, you know, last time we spoke, I was living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Since then, I've moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And it's given me the opportunity to kind of communicate and work with a number of startups kind of as a consultant and kind of just kind of learn how companies that are on the edge, you know, I've been with McKesson for like 18, 19 years now. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to kind of get jaded into an enterprise mentality, working and going and talking to, you know, 22 year old CTOs, you know, is, has been kind of <laughs> eye opening in terms of, okay, so we've got a couple million dollars in an idea. Let's try to make it to a series a, and it's, it's, it's a different experience. So when you have these early stage startups, you know, value creation is kind of their big thing. They want to find those customers, get that early money so that they can, you know, make that series a and get that first round. Mm -hmm. Um, So the last thing they're thinking about are, okay, well, what are we going to do when we hit Twitter scale? Right. Yeah. And chances are, I think the stats are like 98% they're not going to. So, you know, I don't think that that's really ever something to worry about. 
But eventually you have to make that decision. You start to see your system kind of crumble under the synchronous processing that happens within systems. Mm -hmm. You know, part of what precipitated my move to the Bay Area was I had been working and building a financial claims processing system for healthcare when I was working in the other part of McKesson. And I was actually contacted because of mass transit by another division within McKesson that was looking at using it. And they said, hey, this Chris Patterson guy, I think I've seen him on Yammer or something. And <laughs> they wrote me up and they said, hey, are you the mass transit guy? I was kind of like, well, you know, I, I do work a lot on it. And they're like, we, we are, we're trying to use it. Can you answer some questions? So I actually flew out to their office and it seemed that they were, you know, three to four years previous of where we currently had achieved by using some of the asynchronous processing tools that are available when you go to kind of a message based architecture. I see. And so I sat with them and I talked to them. And we did kind of what they called an innovation day or, you know, kind of a hackathon and, we put together a POC using mass transit over a couple of days. And now I live here and work for that division. So that's <laughs> gotcha. kind of how it out. Well, now look what you did. Yeah. Is the reason it was successful because the, the systems that they already had in place were synchronous by nature? Yeah. So they had built a lot of, I mean, this is the classic WCF use case where they had mm. tons of service endpoints that were all hosted through WCF that were then either making additional WCF calls to internal systems or talking directly to a SQL server and doing so at a very fine grain nature, you know, a way that, you know, it, it's almost scary and that the architecture they had built with so much separation. I mean, they had 800 to maybe even a thousand different WCF endpoints, wow. which just sounds massive. Yeah, But they were very fine-grained towards particular aspects of healthcare clinical connectivity. Mm. So you can think of like a patient, you know, signing into a EMR or something like that. Any of these type of interactions had their own different types of services to support them. Right. And going through that whole clinical questionnaire thing and, you know, uh, audit yeah. dynamically bringing up questions and things like that based on answers. And audits and right. HIPAA compliance checks and all of the things that kind of get composed into a single screen within an application. So there was a lot of these different WCF services. And sure enough, the user interaction was never really high volume. I mean, it was, it, there's a lot of users on the system, but users tend to be slow at typing on keyboards. Right. But, but the other aspect of the business is taking real time, uh, healthcare data feeds from all these different clinics and hospitals. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine thousands of messages a second streaming into the system to update patient information. Um, and it was all doing it through the same type of WCF endpoint services. And, you know, to put it basically, they, the system was just consuming itself with so much torsion of all these real time services, talking to the same systems that the user interface and user experiences were on that they just needed to break that coupling and get some sort of asynchronous background processing that they could control. They could, you know, they could pace it to handle bursts and load, you know, put some elasticity into the system so that it didn't buckle every time we received a high amount of traffic from a partner. So that's where it really kind of came in is, Hey, let's try to do some messaging in here. Let's make that move. Uh, we did that POC and now the system has been completely rewritten and runs on top of mass transit now. So, it, I mean, it is possible, but they were they already using queuing? Well, 
Funny you should mention queuing. They were using this thing called SQL Server Service Broker. Mm-hmm. Which, oh, my. You know, mm. is, which, is, <laughs> which is supposed to be queuing, but uh, it does have a dependency on that. It does require a pretty vertically scaled SQL Server to get any sort of significant performance out of it. So, you know, just the, the approach they had taken to try to do asynchronous processing using Service Broker wasn't working out. Uh, so we actually went in and put RabbitMQ in place, built a bunch of services with mass transit to decouple some of those processes from the endpoints to the actual processing. And you know, now we've actually rebuilt the entire messaging and connectivity system around this entire architecture. So it's, it, it, it is kind of one of those things where you have the moment where you kind of have to go all in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can start with some lightweight stuff, and that's actually how we did it. We didn't just go in and rewrite the app and say, we hope it works. We added some adjacent paths for some non-critical processing features to test out the waters and get operations used to understanding and, and monitoring a message-based application because it wasn't just a matter of looking at the web logs or looking at the web analytics and looking at response times on pages. You had to deal with, you know, background Windows services and things that weren't generally running within the the uh, ASP.NET web server. So it, it really required kind of a shift in getting operations and the infrastructure teams up and running and how to support, you know, different systems running in their data center. And so we took a little time and took a gradual approach and then eventually just went all in and moved all of our connectivity flows over to the new system. And were you able, was it a dead drop at some point you just have to switch to the new system or were you able to gradually transition into mass transit? Um, we did it very gradually because all of our endpoints yeah, you know, we didn't have to change any of the endpoints of customers sending us data. We just changed the paths that they took once it hit our endpoints. Right. So another one of the open source projects on my GitHub is uh, Fluidity, which is a code switching framework. So we were actually able to use the context of the caller like, oh, this is customer 27. They're currently enabled on the new flow through the new message based system. So route their call through here. Whereas another caller would come in who hadn't yet been transitioned and their call would go back through the old processing system. So we were able to run them in parallel and really kind of monitor and turn on and turn off features and customers without having to restart the system or do any changes. Were you actually removing WCF from the equation here? Uh, we didn't remove WCF because some of the connectivity protocols that we use are, um, what's that nasty word that I hate to say? Oh, I think SOAP-based. So, <laughs> so WCF still had a purpose. I we found had just the problem. Kind of, <laughs> there's the problem right there. Yeah, there's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, we, we were able to kind of put some code into where we minimized the impact of WCF and took away that coupling to the other systems. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify. Our dev-centric friends at Stackify have been awarded PC Magazine's Editor's Choice for Application Performance Management, stating the depth of application information provided by Stackify totally outshined the other products in this category. Because Stackify so successfully integrates errors, logs, and metrics into a core APM Plus tool, it's a must-have for .NET developers which is why PC Magazine's Paul Farrell calls it one of the best infrastructure management services of 2015. Try Stackify now for free, and they'll ship you their coveted Developers Against Humanity card game. Just activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to build better apps faster and get your free game. 
Have you ever found a need to use a, uh, shall we say, like more like a distributed service bus? And I don't mean they're all distributed. But what's the word I want? Instead of having a central enterprise service bus, you sort of move the functionality that the service bus has to each service. So each service can manage its own uh, mediation routing location, and therefore they have more control over the interfaces and that kind of stuff. Have you ever had that kind of uh, architecture work for you? That's an interesting question. So when traditionally people think of like enterprise service bus, they think of some iron sitting in a closet that has you know specific endpoints coming into it, and all the all the grinding of the messages and routing happens, you know, kind of within that. A central service bus, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you think of things like BizTalk or Tibco's business events or any of these type of large-scale systems. Right. What we what we did with mass transit is we, we let the message transport itself deal with getting messages from point A to point B. Hmm. So, it, so with the mass transit 3 rewrite, which was released a couple months ago, we actually switched to where we only support message brokers that have some intelligence. So we dropped support for MSMQ, but we added support for Azure Service Bus, which also works with the Service Bus for Windows for people who need to run in their own data center. Mm. And the reason we did this is we found that the the peer-to-peer messaging of MSMQ required a lot of plumbing to get things around, whereas modern brokers like RabbitMQ or even Azure Service Bus they have the ability to have their own routing fabric to handle that publish-subscribe pattern to get information out. So mass transit has always been kind of a lightweight layer on top of the messaging transport that provides some conventions for doing things like PubSub, for doing request response, and for doing kind of powerful saga-type stuff where we can actually correlate a number of events into a particular saga or process monitor to track system behavior. So we've really tried to keep the smarts at the endpoint level and have the endpoint define its behavior versus yeah. trying to plug everything into kind of a central coordinator. That makes a lot of sense. It, 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 it helps keep the system scalable because you're not dependent on anything other than the broker. Right. And modern brokers like RabbitMQ actually scale very high if you yeah. run them properly. Um, but the, the behavior is then able to partition out. So you can add functionality to an existing system just by looking at the current events that are published and then possibly creating additional workflows around that. And it's the first time I've heard someone say, yeah, it was time to let MSMQ go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's that's yeah. old tech, right? That's just a straight knockoff of IBM's MQ series, and it really hasn't advanced at all. It's just interesting to see, yeah, there's there are better queuing systems out there now. Well, I, I actually first used MSMQ. I, I want to say it was like 1998. Yeah. It no, was like MSMQ1 on NT4. And I was trying to use it over RAS because we were trying to do dial-up from some remote system that only had a phone line. And, I mean, it was, okay, we're getting really old here. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of pain right there, dude. That's that, what that is. That was a lot of pain. You You hit it right there. Yeah. So I, I mentioned briefly that Mass Transit 3 was just released. One of the one of the funny things is I was on the show about three years ago, and when I wrote kind of my postmortem of well, postmortem, it's not dead, but <laughs> when, I, <laughs> when I wrote kind of my notes of, you know, looking back on the three years of building Mass Transit 3, the first commits that became part of Mass Transit 3 were actually back in August of 2012, which if I recall is when the show aired. Right. Yeah. So, so we had originally kind of discussed how some of the different uh, open source projects I was working on at the time, and 
the, the key impetus for creating Mass Transit 3 was this whole async thing. You know, we had just had the TPL introduced in .NET 4, so now tasks were the cool thing and threads were like what nobody wanted us to use anymore because yep. the runtime was better at managing all that. Mm. And then when async and await came out, and I saw kind of the first bits of that, I want to say it was at TechEd in um, New Orleans. Yeah, uh, they, they had a they had kind of a special NDA session for MVPs, and they first started talking about async and await. And when I saw the construct of how they had done async, and I compared that to approaches that I had looked at before, like doing actor model with stacked, and you know, looking at different ways of making async better. The first time I saw async and await, I thought, okay, this is really going to make it easy for any developer to use asynchronous processing and write scalable applications without having to understand things like esoteric thread models. So at, at that point, I started looking at how that kind of capability could be leveraged. And the first things that I saw is, okay, this isn't going to work with .NET 3.5. It's not going to work with .NET 4. There's kind of just general underpinnings of the previous code base that are not going to carry over. Right. Um, so it was, it was about then and about 18 months ago or thereabouts that I said, okay, this has really got to be just a jettison. I got to start from, you know, I had worked on a number of different ideas alongside the existing Mass Transit 2 code base, and we had built a lot of cool extensions, like being able to do fully distributed transactions across multiple nodes with mm -hmm. execution and compensation and rollback, you know, the, the typical travel agency example where you have to book the flight, the car, and the hotel, and if any of them fail, I have to go back out to those systems and unbook those things because I can't, you know, distribute a transaction across remote systems. Right. Mm -hmm. And what we found is more of our applications were more about interoperability with other healthcare partners. We were making some of these actions that you couldn't just undo in a SQL transaction. You had to actually be able to allocate things and then be able to go back and say, okay, that thing that I just allocated, I would like to go ahead and free that up because I'm not actually going to use that resource. So Right. But it's actually a separate transaction. You, you've taken it, and now you're putting it back, not rollback. Hmm. Correct. It's, it's like when you look at your bank statement and they make a mistake. They don't undo the $100 they gave you as a you know surprise gift. They actually just take it back out, and it's two separate right. line items in your bank balance. So Yeah, which is a little more legitimate, really. Yeah, it's actually what has really happened because you actually have an audit log of what, what was going on. Yeah. So, so we had built a number of these things for this connectivity system that we were building because we needed, you know, these transactions would come into our system. And depending upon the data in the transaction, we would have to define a completely different path for each one because it may contain patient information. It may contain dependent information. There may be some insurance data in there. And all of those things have different handling within the system. So we created this thing called Courier, which allows us to define in a very workflow-oriented manner different activities that can be composed together into a routing slip that can then be executed across an entire system. And each of those activities can define their own execution behavior, as well as record compensation information into that routing slip so that if it comes back through the path and says, oh, by the way, we didn't actually successfully complete, please compensate what you did, it can then make those adjustments and either, you know, take that record out or tombstone that record or mark it as not valid or just ignore it and say, yeah, we'll eventually succeed. So I'm just going to leave it there. Really what you're basically feeding it is here is the method you need to call to reverse the transaction. Correct. Not roll back, but reverse. 
Correct. To reverse or compensate that transaction. Right. Compensates a better, I guess Smart. a better term too. But I, I really yeah. like that idea that your process of calling includes how to undo it. Yeah, exactly. And it just adds that into the routing slip, which it then passes on to the next activity in the chain. And all those activities compose into essentially the, the execution plan or workflow for that particular message. Uh, in this case, a message is like a healthcare transaction, you know, at a business level message versus an actual message right. on the wire. Yeah, the other thing that I really appreciate about this mindset is it's there's no magic here. You're you're building up sort of a bill of goods here for what it's going to take to resolve this one way or the other. Yeah, it, it actually kind of maps to how things used to work in offices before computers. You would have these right. little scraps of paper that had, you know, five checkboxes. This has to go through accounting approval, then it has to go through inventory approval, then it has to actually go through filling, and, you know, it would just get passed through those different people. And it was just, it was a routing slip. The, the yeah. physical manifestation of what this technology is, is where the idea came from. Well, and I bring it up because I, I recently had a conversation with an organization where we were talking about distributed transaction coordination, and I'm and I've actually seen a transaction fail and a new connection made to a a, a SQL server that rolled back the transaction. Like it's voodoo when you see it in action, and uh, and and it was really interesting to see these younger developers' reaction to that. Is well, that's horrible. That's <laughs> a magic box. I don't like magic box. I want very obvious, and this. The, the slip approach is a much more coherent. You're keeping all of the pieces together. There's no voodoo. It, it really resonated well with our developers. And immediately they came up with ideas that we had to put in place. For instance, every time an activity within a routing slip executes, it produces events. And because we have the message fabric there with the with RabbitMQ, we're able to say, okay, well, when I publish an event that an activity completed, well, I can have... I can have an activity log that just consumes those messages and puts them into a, just do a write once store that's like a time to live collection in MongoDB. So if mm -hmm. you punch in that transaction number, you can see every little step along the way. Just like when you go to FedEx and look at your package, you can see every little city it went through along the way. Right. We sure. have the, we have, the, we have the same operational visibility that we even surface up to customers. So if they want to look for a particular customer record, they can look and see everything that was applied to that. It's like a call stack for messages. Yeah, and, and it works really well for looking back at what happened. We're also able to correlate those events into sagas so that we can track the actual state. So if it completes, we can mark it as completed. This one was processed. If it faults, we can look at that too and say this message faulted. And we even built a sophisticated retry engine to say, okay, well, why did it fail? Is it a recoverable error? Was a resource unavailable? Well, maybe I'll try that again in four minutes and we'll actually schedule into the future uh, using a, a quartz scheduler, which is a, another open source project that we integrated into mass transit to be able to schedule future messages. We'll say, okay, well, in four minutes, go ahead and tell me that I should try this message again so that we're not leaving those call stacks sitting on a machine somewhere. We're actually just using events to re-trigger those same behaviors throughout the system. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to tell the story of Jack the Courier, who tried to deliver a slip, tripped over a rabbit, and almost got hit by a bus. <laughs> Thankfully, the bus rolled back and saved his life. <sighs> so transactional. I know. It's actually time to give away a Telerik to, hey, I made, made Chris laugh, though. That's good, at least. <laughs> it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first... Do you know Swift, Objective-C, and Java? 
Can you use them in tools like Xcode and Android Studio? If so, awesome. For everyone else, there's NativeScript, a cross-platform framework for building native iOS and Android apps using skills you already have. JavaScript or TypeScript, CSS, and a XAML-like XML markup. Start building your dream native mobile apps today. Use the NativeScript CLI for free, or use NativeScript in Visual Studio with a Telerik platform subscription, which enables you to build iOS apps without the glowing Apple. Get started for free at Telerik.com slash NativeScript. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Ted Gaston. Congratulations, Ted. Golf clap for you, sir. Yes. And Ted just won the Telerik DevCraft Collection. That's a big pile of awesome from our friends at Telerik. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, it's December. It's December. We give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Coming right up. Not this show. Sorry. Real soon now. Real soon now. <laughs> but uh, we also like to ask our guests, Chris, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Well, I'd definitely go for a couple of 4K monitors and something to drive it. Yeah. I like that. I like <laughs> More that More monitor good. <laughs> You can never have enough screen real estate. How many video cards do you need to drive two 4K monitors? Uh, you can drive both of them with just a single MacBook Pro now. I suppose you're right. That's a little scary, <laughs> but very cool. It depends on the monitors you get. You know, I, I've been looking at them for a while. Like, there's plenty of six and seven hundred dollar 4Ks, but they're only like 28 inches, so you can't use the resolution. It's just too dense. Mm. But uh, when you get to bigger monitors, they get more expensive. Although, yeah, there's a really interesting window there. Our friend Sahil Malik and I have been going back and forth. He found a 40-inch 4K. Mm. And it's actually a monitor, not a TV, for right. under $1,000. Wow. But, uh, but the good ones, they, the, the ones that I've been looking at the hardest that are 34, 32 to 34, they're 1500 bucks a shot. Yeah. Yeah, I think at some point the IMAX factor kicks in. of Kind of like when you get the last ticket and you're sitting in the front row. Uh, you get a little next train after panning across a couple of big monitors. Yeah, how big a screen do you need? <laughs> yeah. Which, I, I mean, that's just an interesting debate all by itself because the correct size of screen is larger. <laughs> I, I, I find that I actually prefer the clearer text. You know, getting getting your eyes set up, you know, aging, aging kind of does its thing. So getting an eye prescription that's made for like that 24-inch distance and then yeah. getting a couple of clear monitors makes makes coding at long stretches of time, which clearly I tend to write a little bit of code, uh, can come in handy when you're, uh, when you're getting into the, the higher numbers of years. Yeah. So. yeah we're getting old. Yeah. We're, all getting old. <laughs> we're coming into the age of squint. <laughs> I still think it's a conspiracy to get rid of all the old developers. Well, that's that's just when they have to start doing the talk circuit and everything. <laughs> or start a podcast. Who would do that? <laughs> Who would do that? <laughs> Very cool. So this slip carries with it the history of where it has been and uh, is easily queryable by anybody to figure out where, you know, maybe diagnostic information, where things took too long, maybe. Yeah, so since each of the activities along the routing slip actually produces an event, it includes timing information, such as like start, time, and duration. 
Mm. So you're able to load that in and run some queries against it. One of the guys that's in our operations team, actually, he's more developer than operations, but he's actually in the master's program at Berkeley for data science. And so he's been using a lot of the data that we generate because, you know, if you, if you don't know the answer to a question, the, the, the correct answer is always generate more data. And then we'll try to find an answer to that question. You know, loading that stuff into analysis tools like R and looking and seeing, okay, well, these are the activities that are taking the most time, but they're taking the most time because of this particular address that it's trying to talk to is slower by, you know, 48% compared to the other ones. So maybe if we start partitioning traffic by destination, we can get higher throughput and you're able to kind of get meaningful insights by having visibility into every step of your application processing. So that's been kind of cool to generate that amount of data. Is this something that you can monitor in a dashboard? You know, dashboards are kind of the cool things everybody loves to see. They like to see that things are going well. Uh, we have a few that mo- mostly just look at successes versus failures and error rates. Mm. But what we find is when things get slow, you'll start to see trends on the chart because, you know, response time or execution time is one of the metrics that we track. Yeah. And so you are able to see, hey, things are slowing down. Maybe we need to reduce the ingest rate of less important or lower priority traffic so that the system doesn't, you know, consume itself. Right. You know, when you start to build distributed systems, it's it's easy to forget the concept of back pressure and how, you know, unable to connect a server was, you know, a server's way of introducing back pressure of saying, hey, I'm too busy to talk to you right now. So right. you wait. When you get into messaging and start writing queues, messages into queues, you don't want to get to the point where you have, you know, two, three, four million messages sitting in a queue because then you're looking at, you know, potentially hours worth of data that hasn't been processed yet. Yeah. So it'd be nice to see like the backlog in a queue, you know, of all the different points in the system and to say, you know, figure out, oh, how, what are the ways in which we could sort of alleviate this problem? Yeah, so so that that does kind of go into a key aspect of actually operationalizing message services. And you know, we had to bring our entire network operations center up to speed. Fortunately, RabbitMQ has really great uh, management tools and that are browser based that they can connect into, mm-hmm. and they can also monitor HTTP endpoints to check things like queue depth. So it's easy for them to say, "Hey, uh, you know," though they may contact the engineering team and say, "Hey, we're seeing." We're seeing a, a higher than normal number of messages in, you know, say a particular ingest queue. Uh, do we have a problem? You know, they can look at logs and they can look at uh, performance counters and see processing time of, you know, consumers running within the system. And a lot of times they can kind of self-diagnose and say, oh, you know, we're just seeing higher than normal pressure on SQL Server. If we add three more service instances, we can, you know, handle the load and it'll smooth out. And so then they can just spin up additional service instances on other machines in the data center to handle that additional message trap. Yeah. Or in Azure. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Azure. So at, with Mass Transit 3, you know, we, we kept RabbitMQ, but we also added very good native support for Azure Service Bus. So Azure Service Bus is the is the future of messaging for Microsoft. Mm-hmm. You know they have Service Bus, and then now they've also added Event Hub to that for their you know very high ingest rate kind of Internet of Things type data acquisition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Service Bus is still their topic queue based message broker that they have in Azure. And for about the past eighteen months, we've been doing a lot of build out in Azure and using Azure Service Bus as you know that version of RabbitMQ. 
the nice thing is that we've been able to take code that we wrote for RabbitMQ, and because it doesn't really target RabbitMQ, it targets mass transit, we're able to move that code over and just point it at Azure Service Bus and take advantage of the same you know, programming conventions that mass transit has without having to understand all the intricacies of Azure Service Bus. And that's been great from being able to just move logic over to new mm -hmm. services running in Azure. Mm -hmm. um, the other part has just been a learning exercise of Azure is, you know, it's built for the cloud. It's a cloud-first type tool. So things like you make a call and it might return an error that's transient. You have to retry it. Plus the fact that most of these are HTTP calls to REST management endpoints in Azure Service Bus. And this is where the whole transition to async was really important because the Service Bus APIs that are provided in the Azure SDK, they're all async enabled. You know, it's expected to take more than, you know, a local in-process calls time to actually do something. So being able to take advantage of all those async APIs and compose using async and await made it really easy to write that code to be able to you know, take that transport and deliver messages to it mm. without having to worry about the intermittent or transient failures because of, you know, s smart retrial handling on the HTTP client side and their SDK has retry handling. And, you know, it, it was a learning thing because typically within a nice closed data center where your message broker is on the same network, it's very fast and things, you know, latency is low. But you have to always remember as a developer that latency isn't free. Sometimes latency goes up. And especially what we've seen in Azure is that when you're running on, when you're running a, a 12 instance cloud service talking to Azure service bus, well, things can get uh, busy when you're talking <laughs> to that. <laughs> and I was going to ask you about Azure service bus because I, I just wondered if it was worthy. Uh, it's, it's a pretty solid, and it actually has some really cool advanced capabilities. Um, it, it, it has topics and queues, which have always kind of been there and you can actually yeah. create topic subscribers. We're just a, just a variety of a queue and topic subscribers can actually forward to queues. So a lot of the conventional message routing and mass transit was e easy to port over. Um, but it also adds some really cool things. So with mass transit three, part of the rewrite was to do it at a transport first notion. So when you're developing things like message consumers and routing slip activities and sagas, you're doing that against mass transit's API. But when you're configuring things now, which is typically at the very outer edge of your application, you know, your program CS right. type level, you're able to there opt into the different features of that specific transport in a very specific way. So for instance, Azure Service Bus has things like message sessions, which are actual stateful message conversations over multiple messages. Well, this turns out to be a very powerful tool for orchestrating things like request response, or even some very lightweight sagas. So a saga is a, a tool that allows you to coordinate multiple events and track state between those events to determine, you know, it's sort of like a process monitor type right. behavior of, well, when these three events happen, if these variables are in here, I want to then go do this. And it's this orchestration tool. Yeah. Well, typically that state has to be stored somewhere. And in the past, that's been done through like SQL Server or MongoDB, or I know people have written adapters for other different storage systems, but something has to store that state so that when the messages are not being processed, that, that state can then be pulled back from the storage system when a message is received and processed, and then it updates that state. Mm -hmm. um, well, with Azure Service Bus, you can actually set session IDs and actually correlate state to those messages. So when the message is delivered to the consumer by Azure Service Bus, 
it includes that stream of state. So we're actually adding support where you can actually have a saga that is completely running an Azure service bus with the state being stored within a message session so that you don't have to have a separate state store, which has been kind of a a tough spot for us in Azure because do you really want to allocate a whole Azure SQL instance just to store orchestration state? Or if you can do it in a message session, now it makes it very lightweight and easy. Uh, Azure Service Bus also, you know, we use Quartz for scheduling messages within RabbitMQ. Azure Service Bus has the ability to say, oh, by the way, send me this message in 15 minutes. So it already has scheduling of messages. So wow, we didn't cool. need... Yeah, so we were able to just basically, the consumers can use the same APIs to schedule that they were doing under the covers. But because you've configured the transport, it says, oh, well, when a consumer tries to schedule a message, I'm just going to set the message in queue time on the send so that the transport will automatically handle the delivery at the specified time. So we've managed to reduce our architectural footprint of the things we have to have running. You know, Quartz running with a SQL database to manage scheduled messages. We don't need to do that. Now we can do several lightweight, simple sagas without having to have storage for those. So we've eliminated one more operational dependency. It's really allowed us to kind of take advantage of a lot of that transport functionality without having to just kind of fall back on the old ways we used to do stuff of, oh, bring up Entity Framework in a database and let's call it good. <laughs> so, Chris, there's been a lot of talk recently about microservices architecture. And, you know, it's, it seems like the, it's trying to solve the same problem. You know, SOA, ESB, microservices, EAI, all this stuff. Can you sort of untangle this for us in, uh, in 15 minutes or less? <laughs> <laughs> so microservices has definitely gotten a lot of mind share lately. It's definitely what people are talking about. Um, I talked to a friend who was at QCon just this past week, and apparently it was very buzzword friendly when it came to the term microservices. It was, I think every session had to mention it at least twice. Right. Um, you know, earlier in the show, we talked about, you know, this WCF mess of, you know, 800 services. And every time I think of microservices, I think of that. Yeah. Well, and it, when you were describing it, I was thinking, wow, that sounds like microservices, except they were all WCF endpoints. So they were so much bigger. Yeah heavy. Yeah. And so I think the, the flag that microservices flies under, and you know, we may have talked about this before when we build services with messages, we're really building little autonomous services that fit within a particular business context. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I, I feel like that's what microservices is trying to say. It's, it's not saying put every endpoint in its own node in Amazon's cloud, because honestly, Amazon would love that. The, the tickets would roll up crazy <laughs> yeah, and yes. you would just spend a ton of money. Yes. Um, but what I really think that microservices is trying to say is it kind of goes back to the single responsibility principle sure. of, you know, do one thing and do it well, but don't just do one thing. Do a few related things and keep them concrete enough that your dependencies are minimized because the problem with big SOA is that it kind of, you know, when I, when I look back at this and I see that, you know, we had these 800 WCF services, they were all deployed within one IIS virtual directory. Oh yeah. Wow. See, there's the problem right there. So, so it was, it was more of this monolith first development. And then what we did when we built the new platform around that with mass transit is we said, okay, these sections of that functionality will be taken out and done in the new platform. And it didn't use any shared components of the previous platform. So in essence, 
looking at this large system you have and not saying, oh, let's just go create new microservices. Let's look at what our business does. Let's look at the capabilities that we have in our software today and find those pieces that should be extracted out and, you know, become those autonomous components running within our systems. And the key there, like you said, is if one fails, it shouldn't take down the rest of the system. Exactly. And, and if one of them gets bottlenecked, it shouldn't overwhelm the rest of the system, yeah. making other services unavailable. You know, that's that's the monolith problem. Do you see the reason that they monolith package that as a deployment problem? Because it's just so hard to deploy WCF services. You, know, you don't want to build more than one? <laughs> well, I think that that definitely is a kind of a case. You think about it from a software deployment model is... If I could go in and deploy one service to an ASP.NET web server and it has all of my application in it, right. operationally, that's easy. Yeah. And it also means all the versions stay in sync like you deploy everything at once. Yeah. Yeah. It's the big bang deploy. We upgrade the right. whole box. <laughs> but decomposing this means, you know, maintaining compatibility between all the different versions of these services. Yeah. So when you go into these microservice architectures where you're deploying, say, 12 different services, let's just pick an arbitrary number and each of those are deploying independently, you may have version dependencies on components. It's very important when you're building in that architecture to define that, that API level interface between those services and keep that API both consistent and forward compatible so that if you add new features to it or if you add new properties to that API call, that you're respecting callers that might not be passing those properties. Right. And just as, just as well, if you're getting those new properties, don't be dependent upon them because otherwise you immediately break downstream clients. But this is why we had service buses in the first place was I didn't own all of the stack. There were right. other teams in other languages, other tools and other third parties, and you couldn't rev everything together. That was impossible. It's the sewing together of existing disparate systems where ESP, I think, comes comes into the rescue, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, so we've always, you know, carried through in our literature and documentation that message contracts should be kind of like the golden, the golden sacred thing that doesn't get changed. They can be evolved and they should be compatible with both old senders and producers. But those are really your seams that allow the different components within the system to operate. So if you have a address verification service that has a very specific API and a very specific response type. And those are implemented through message contracts and how the implementation happens under the covers is a completely private, you know, black box thing to the rest of the system. And I think microservices is saying the same thing, but they need to make sure that they clearly dictate that the reason that that type of architecture can succeed is because of the fact that those interfaces between the services are very rigid and difficult to change because of the impact downstream. Well, the other argument, of course, is that you never change them. You just add new ones. And, and that's something that we've done in some of our systems. You know, it's developers take different tacks to it, but we have some message contracts that are like update patient account, and then we have an update patient account V2. Yep. You know, and it may be the same service that accepts both of those messages, but it it ensures that we're not breaking compatibility with down-level clients that haven't updated to the new contract. Well, and, and it mm. doesn't really cost anything, right? Code that never runs never costs you a thing. Code that breaks costs you things. So why wouldn't you just keep adding on there, and only when they're no longer used, you take them out? Yeah, as as long as you're not sort of just adding new fields to the same interface... You know what I'm saying? That 
you're, you are actually deprecating the old ones and creating new ones. Otherwise, you end up with, you know, a hundred fields that you don't need, for example. Yeah, it, it really takes some discipline in managing contracts for messages and or even just APIs in a microservice level. It's, it's very important to understand who owns it. You know, right. if, a, if a service has a calling API, that service owns that API. And if a service, produ- you know, in the case of our services with messages, if we're producing events, that service owns those events that it produces. Mm. And any down-level systems that want to observe those events, they aren't they aren't necessarily allowed to modify that contract. They may ask the service if they can add additional information to it over time, but it's not like another service is going to produce that same event contract because that would just kind of break the ownership of now you're serving two masters. And that's, that's no different than, you know, having that single SQL table that has a whole bunch of random one, random two, random three columns in it for those, you know, special business applications. Yep. (laughs) Seen plenty of them. We all have. <laughs> Chris, what's next for you? What's in your inbox? So what's next for me? Well, Mass Transit 3 has definitely taken a little bit of my spare time. Mm-hmm. Getting people up to speed on it and helping people migrate has been, you know, a lot of traffic on the mailing list, Stack Overflow, and the various sites out there where people get in touch with us. Um, there's still a little documentation work. There's still some feature work. Like I said, we were POC and stuff last week. Uh, we have a lot of development agendas going in Azure for how we're building a lot of our new applications, you know, cloud first. So we're identifying new capabilities that we just have gaps on and we're, we're, we're prototyping those out. Um, it, it's, it's fun building in a cloud environment with a, a bunch of distributed development teams. You know, everyone has a different approach on how they, ad- how they make that move to the cloud because it's it's flavored based on how they used to develop. You know, if they used to develop on-prem software and this is their first kind of voyage into SaaS, or if they've been building SaaS all along but in a private dentist center, you know, it's a different perspective of seeing how they go through that journey. Mm. You know, I've I've spent a lot of time looking at how we operationalize and support these distributed systems as we go into the cloud. Because, again, it's not an ops team with a data center where they can just go buy, you know, operations manager or some tool and just run it in the data center and see where everything goes. You could be running in three different Azure data centers across the West Coast and then spreading across to geo-replication to East or South or even over into Europe or Asia. So it's it's a completely different model and it, the complexity is is extremely high and being able to keep tabs on that and yet still build systems that are reliable and don't fall apart, but yet take advantage of all the, the, the scaling capabilities that we have in Azure right. or even, or even Amazon. I mean, the cloud providers are very similar. We've went with Azure just because, you know, we have a good relationship with Microsoft in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a different world and getting people to understand that, you know, your firewall doesn't run in Azure, but yet, you shouldn't throw away all the good deployment strategies of having like private IP subnets and public reverse proxies and controlling traffic and having things like application firewalls at the outer edge and, you know, all the same development principles that you did for security in a data center are equally important in the cloud. So that's been pulling a lot of my attention. That's good stuff, Chris. And uh, thanks for spending this hour with us and uh, good luck on Mass Transit 3. Yeah, thanks. It's been great to be on the show again. Hopefully we do it in less than three years next time. Definitely. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. 
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a type of